0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. I'm David Chen. Today is March 18th, 2021, and today we're going to be talking about anti-Asian racism and hatred, specifically in the context of the events this week, the murder of eight people in Atlanta, Georgia, including six people of Asian descent. Uh, Joining me today to help process this news and to discuss uh the issues around what's happening my partner in life my partner in podcasting joy of napping joy thanks for joining me today
1: yeah it's um it's hard to be here right now because it's so heavy and we're so tired but at the same time we feel compelled that this is maybe the best moment to talk about things when we hopefully have a few people's attention on these issues
0: yeah So why don't we start with how we're feeling about the events this week. And uh, why don't I let you begin, Joy, because I think you have some thoughts.
1: As the days have gone on, and by the way, it's only been two days since we heard about this, I've had a chance to connect more with friends and colleagues and family. And there's so much pain and so much deep trauma that's being brought up by these events, um, and we'll talk about it, but not just the events of this week, but the events of the past year in terms of anti-Asian rhetoric, anti-Asian violence, um, that it really has um, shaken me more. And I would say my predominant feeling is uh, sadness, but also um, there's a lot of anger and You and I make this joke sometimes, David, but the truth is like, no matter how warm and friendly and positive I seem, I've also been angry pretty much my whole life at the injustice that I see daily in this country. And I I think that's a healthy reaction. I really don't want to live in bitterness, but I also try to maintain a healthy anger. And, um, you know, uh, that's never far from me. And, of course, I feel that as well right now. What about
0: you? Well, I think the last few years, and specifically the last year, has been about being angry, Um, angry at being gaslit by uh, the Trump administration, angry that uh, one major party in the United States of America has decided to use anti-Asian rhetoric as a cudgel in order to achieve its political ends, Uh, angry that more people don't understand that that is something that would inevitably lead to violence. Um, So I've been angry for a long time, and I think that uh, the events of the last week really felt inevitable um it felt like it was something that was going to happen eventually and we've already been seeing it we've already been seeing it happen with random people random asian americans and asian elders getting attacked in the street getting maimed and slashed and uh things thrown at them and being told to go back to china and things like that like we've already been seeing this um thousands of uh of racist events happening against Asian people over the course of last year, um, racist attacks happening over the course of last year. And it felt like this was bubbling up. It felt like something was going to happen that was going to eventually kind of break through and let it, people who weren't Asian American understand this is a real problem that needs to be addressed and tackled head on and that we need solidarity. And sadly, this week was the way in which that happened. But in addition to just the general rage that I experience um, and have been experiencing about how Asian-Americans concerns about this Asian-American racism have been brushed off and have been brushed off for many years. uh, I'm also really disappointed with how law enforcement and the media have handled this situation. In particular, uh, the famous quote, now famous quote that one of the law enforcement officers said was, um, he had a bad day and this is what he did. He had a bad day and this is what he did. I'm going to remember those words for the rest of my life because it really centers the experience of the murderer, you know? It doesn't center the experience of those who were murdered. Uh, and it's just such a preposterous statement on its face.
1: Yeah, which of these people had an extremely bad day and were at the end of their rope? Yeah. Was it all the people who didn't live to see the next day?
0: Yeah. So I think that uh, I am disappointed with how uh, law enforcement have handled this. I think media have learned some lessons over the course of the last two years, and I'm seeing like relatively robust coverage about anti-Asian sentiment and violence, and like that's encouraging. But it's just uh, disappointing that the things that we've seen with other mass casualty events, with other mass shootings and stuff, uh, have continued to be followed. And what I mean by that is like, Centering the experience of the killer, portraying the killer in the most sympathetic light possible. And in this case, an added disappointment of the fact that um, the killer said it wasn't a racially motivated attack. Now, he murdered eight people, including six of whom who are Asians. uh, And he said it's not racially motivated. He was just trying to, like, uh, remove temptation that it was, like, uh, perhaps part of his sexual addiction. These are the things that people have tried to understand about the killer's motivations, and really, it's a combination of everything. It's a combination of uh, the toxic evangelical culture that we have right now, because apparently this guy was Christian. It's a combination of like racism, mis- misogyny, and all of these things. Um, it's not just one thing. You know, it's a combination of the fact that a person can buy a gun and hours later own it and use it against people and take so many lives like it's just it's all mixed in together it's all about what america is today all right i've been talking for a while your thoughts joy
1: i mean i think we should address this up top and to be this question you just raised about, is it racism or is it not? And I think in order to do that, we need to have a working definition of racism, which we clearly do not have in America right now. And we are all yelling at each other about whether something is racist or not. And I want to get into that. And I also want to bring up some other, throughout the course of this discussion, I want to bring up some other important concepts in Asian American and Pacific Islander community organizing and racial identity, um, you know, work that's been done. It's it's work that I did not do, but that I am a consumer of, so hopefully I represent it well. But I think that just like many people have spent the last year coming to like the 101, going from like no knowledge whatsoever, to the 101, to the 102, to hopefully the 201 and the 202 in understanding anti-blackness. Um, and to be clear, I think anti-blackness is a much more um, compounded and f- it's, it's really a foundational problem for America. Anti-Asian sentiment, we're not our issues on average, on average, are not as bad. I'm going to double click on that for sure um, to try to de-average it. Um, and, and we, there aren't as many of us. So I don't think it's as big of a problem in terms of quantity. But yeah, that doesn't make as it. as many
0: of us in America. Right.
1: As, yeah. But th- that doesn't make it unimportant. And so if you're looking for some primer or some basic understanding of the major issues, I hope you can stick with us through this. The, the first question, though, is one that cuts across all forms of the racial equity discussion, which is, what is racism? And I think when people hear the word racist, the image that comes to mind is somebody with a hood and a burning cross and they are an overt bigot, by which I mean they would make they hold prejudiced beliefs based on race. They would make choices based on those beliefs like, oh, you applied for a job, but you're black, so therefore I don't want you Um And that they would have some self-awareness around, like there's no gap between what they say and what they think. Um, And this is the kind of culprit we're looking for when we think about racism. And we think if we just stamp those people out, then we're gonna fix the problem. Problem solved. And we also think we can find those people. Do you know how we know who they are? Because they tweeted something with the N-word in 2012. And so I think that is a form of racism. So I'm not giving those people a pass. I would argue that these people are outnumbered by a huge number of other people that is almost everyone, including people on the left, okay, who have beliefs and or like narratives they hold in their head or behave with certain norms or just benefit from a power structure that allows the racial arrangement to continue. And that's a lot more complicated to see. It's not a thing you can identify in a tweet. Um, and you don't have to make bad choices, bigoted choices. You don't have to be an evil person with animus in your heart to end up perpetuating the system of racism. A classic example is Where do you buy a house so your kids can go to school? You don't need to be a racist to decide that you want your kids to have a better education. You don't need to be right. You know, you you just move to like the best neighborhood that you this is like a classic thing that everybody does. I'm just going to move to the best schools neighborhood that I can afford. And by so doing, when white people move in or Asian people, frankly, the uh, home prices tend to rise accordingly. And because the uh, schools are funded via property taxes in a particularly localized way, this tends to like, have a self-reinforcing um, effect of improving the schools. And then you end up effectively with, because of income inequality and wealth inequality that already existed, that just has nothing to do with where you chose to purchase your home. People can be priced out of these neighborhoods who are lower earning and who have less wealth to fall back on, which is people of color and certain people of color. And you end up with a, like basically we've recreated segregation in America through the way that we fund our schools and the real estate decisions that people make. But nobody in that was a bigot. Nobody in that was like, I want to burn a cross on someone's lawn to keep them out of my neighborhood. In fact, in theory, a lot of these people would probably welcome you know, to have a black neighbor or two, or they'd vote for Obama a third time or whatever it is. Um, But, you know, there's a a whole podcast series called Nice White Parents that is partly about this dynamic. So I'm saying this, all this context, to say there is a difference between racist intent and racist impact. And many of the times when we're talking about structural racism or systemic racism in America, what we are really talking about is the impact of these decisions that were created by systems and norms and narratives like set up long before many of us even existed. But this thing almost like spins on its own axis at this point, And we actually have to be concertedly anti-racist in order to begin to try to address. So I hope that that detour into An understanding of how different people use the word racism is helpful. I think that if people are looking for a manifesto that this shooter wrote, that's like, I hate Asians. And like, it's got caricatures of slanty eyes and coolie hats or something like they're probably not going to find it. And. I actually think that like the federal definition of a hate crime might require that level of extremely direct, like, I hate Jews, I'm going to murder Jews tomorrow, and then you go out and do that level of like through line, um, because the burden of proof for a hate crime is so strict. The question is, and I think this is what you're getting at, David, if you effectively have a racist impact, not because the six of the eight people happen to be Asian, but is there something about... Asian women that you view as less human? Is there something that you view as more objectified or more um, like they ought to be subservient to your desires, or that they're more expendable? You know, those kinds of stereotypes, which by the way, have been applied to Asian Americans and Asian American women and Asian women in Asia for a long time. um, That's when people start to say it was racist anyway. And it's not to say that his intent doesn't matter, but rather that um, setting aside whether we trust his level of self-awareness as a 21-year-old who shot up three massage parlors as a way to possibly cure his sex addiction. um, I think also driving past other sex-related businesses on the way, because there's a 30-minute drive between these stops. Yeah. The question is, like, is there... Is there other stuff going on? And I will just tell you <laughs> that whether it is declared a hate crime or not, it touches on so many complicated issues for Asian-Americans that I would say it, it almost might as well be. I don't know Do you, if you agree with that.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean... I think you put it very well, which is basically he doesn't he doesn't have to be an explicit bigot for it to be uh, a racist act. But I think you're also pointing to the fact that uh, racism is a not very effective term to describe a wide variety of things in our society, because I think a lot of white people and other people of other races are being sca- are very scared of being called racist, when in fact it can mean. Being extremely bigoted, it can mean benefiting from uh, a
1: a structure of privilege, yeah,
0: unequal structure, like power structures. In which case, literally all of us are racist, right? right, right? Exactly. And so it's just like it's just not very useful because it is both an extremely loaded term and it applies to like a wide variety of things, right? but all that it, it's you know.
1: amazing to me that you could get canceled. If I went out and used the N-word like three times in this broadcast, I will absolutely be canceled. People will find my home address and blow me up, right? And I will never work again. But if I benefit from racist structure my entire life, if I exploit people, if I underpay uh, people based on their immigration status, if I... Um, have microaggressions all day long, I will never face a consequence for any of that. And so I actually think there's something about the way that we demonize this handful of people and this handful of behaviors, which I'm not saying they're not hurtful. I think they are extremely. um, But we make them the enemy, like they're far away. They're this remote, small percentage. That's what allows the 90% of us to just keep on going with our unexamined behaviors because we know we're good because we're not them. We're not with tiki torches in Charlottesville.
0: Yeah. So I think that uh, you can call it racist or not. Like, we believe racism is involved, even if this person was not a bigot, right? Like, that's kind of the conclusion there. Um, People may have their own opinions, their own definitions of racism, but, like, that's uh, we think it can apply to a wide variety of things. And, like, so... Uh, we have no challenge calling it uh, a racist act or that racism informed this in some way. And I think you're right that like, it's the result of a lot of things, a pile of things that are like decades old, right? Dehumanizing Asian Americans, making Asian Americans invisible, whether by ignoring them, whether by not taking their concerns seriously, whether by slandering them and expecting nothing to happen. popular culture and its depictions of Asian Americans and specifically Asian American women. All these things kind of feed into people's attitudes uh, in ways that shape their opinions on uh, and kind of biases about Asians. And then you add on top of that, so it's already like pretty bad mountainous stuff. You add on top of that, Asian Americans are responsible for the coronavirus. Asian Americans are the reason why Um, you are suffering, or you can't fight off these temptations in your mind, or uh, they're the reason why your great aunt died all of a sudden this last summer. And it's just going to inflame tensions and cause violence. So uh, I think that basically even pre-COVID, a lot of terrible stuff about Asians and how we were treated in American society. Yeah. So let me
1: like, if we rewind the tape a little bit, Asian Americans have a long and sad history of being perceived as foreign, even if you're a third generation, fourth generation, um, and as an outside threat and a vector um, for evil to come into this country. So you could Google the term yellow peril, but whether it's, disease being brought into the country, or an invasion of Japanese people buying up all the real estate, or um, an invasion of people taking spots at Ivy League schools. Um, It is always like this foreign threat to be managed, as opposed to a story about oh, well, we all come here and it's a melting pot and there's assimilation and then, you know, we all become part of the rich tapestry of diversity in America. There's an extent to which we are welcomed under that until we become a problem. And I always say it's like we're invisible and it's all cool until it's not. And so... It or not even, not even
0: become a problem I would argue until it becomes advantageous for to, someone to need to a not scapegoat. treat us that way yeah right? exactly yeah. Yeah.
1: and so why do we need a scapegoat for America's handling of covid hmm. you know like I don't think I have to really dig that deeply into it but I think to raise up just a few things it is tied to a convenient way to link um the terrible suffering here as a result of mismanagement here, um, to, to shift attention to specifically the country of China. And the country of China is run by a communist party. And there is a very large percentage of this country, which fears literally nothing more than what they would deem socialism. Socialism would involve things like Expanded health care coverage, you know, like there, there are all kinds of things they tie to socialism, which I would describe as very far short of actual socialism um, and state run enterprise. Um, but it's uh, it helps to tie things to the boogeyman, basically. And who's the boogeyman? I mean, people are getting attacked who aren't even remotely from China. Asia's a lot bigger than China, but it is. Irrelevant, you know, like if someone wants to attack someone Filipino or Korean or shoot up uh, the four Asian women whose names we do know were actually Korean. Um, it's it's really amazing how flattening and and frankly, ignorant, um, it is to try to collapse all of these civilizations that are, in some cases, 3,500 years old, and by the way, all hate each other. Like back in Asia, it's not like we're all like, oh, we're Asian, you know, like there's actually like an enormous amount of rivalry, war, you know, um, ongoing conflict. So the idea that people would all be um, viewed as one monolithic thing um, in America um is just like shows the extremely shallow familiarity with these cultures. Most Asian people can tell you just by looking at other Asian people, probably what country they're from. So there's lots of difference there. That's discernible that people literally just don't bother to see here.
0: Yeah. Uh, It's (laughs) it's disappoint. The racism is disappointing and also, it's very unfocused racism. It's it's very um,
1: poorly implemented. It's, por- racism. it's
0: poorly implemented racism, and uh, or
1: maybe that's the point. Uh,
0: I, I don't expect like a really refined racism, to be honest. I think like at its core, it's pretty unrefined, you know. But uh, my heart goes out to all the people who've been attacked, um, regardless of what uh, what nationality they are. It's it's upsetting because it's like um, not only are you seen as other. Right, you are seen as kind of part of an other monolithic group of people, basically. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been upsetting to see all the attacks uh, that have happened over the course of last year. Uh, thousands of attacks have been reported, and uh, anti-Asian racism and hate is on the rise in many of the major cities in this country
1: i saw a pew research poll that said that 30 percent of americans reported having heard someone else say something anti-asian in the past year i think it was and that 60 percent of asians reported it um so no one has said kung flu or china virus to my face but i also have barely left the house so I would say there is an enormous amount of anxiety among all of us that as we get the vaccine and attempt to reenter society a little bit, like what the hell is waiting for us out there? It's It should be a time of, of great um, joy and relief to reconnect with other people. Um, but we're looking over our shoulders and thinking about buying our parents whistles. Um, so before we move into like more sort of foundational concepts, I do want to ask you... Um, about this piece about we've talked about the shooting to some extent, but we haven't talked about the the attacks on our elders. I, I literally I don't know how to try to digest this series of videos that's come out almost all in 2021 of people you know, they basically have no context. So it's really hard to know what's going on, but they tend to feel like someone has come from out of nowhere and shoved or punched or something, one of our elders who is Asian American or Pacific Islander and not even with a particular motive like a robbery. Is that how you would describe it?
0: I think that's right. Yeah. And this is deeply upsetting for a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, they're all cowards because they're attacking the most vulnerable people, you know, Um, people who who cannot defend themselves. And it's obviously deeply upsetting because something you've pointed out, Joy, is that um, in Asian cultures, we deeply revere revere our elders. Uh, In American culture, um, I think there is a lot of disrespect that is aimed towards elderly people. And it is the opposite in many Asian cultures. And so the fact that the elders are the most vulnerable and the ones that seem to be uh, the subjects of these extremely viral videos, uh, most of them is deeply upsetting and um it you know is causing many of us to have conversations with our parents uh, about i I had a conversation with my mom is it like don't go anywhere alone don't go walking out there by yourself like uh and i'd never thought i'd need to have that conversation with my mom many of our parents have come from extremely challenging environments oppressive regimes extreme poverty and to then need to have them survive this pandemic and tell them by the way there's potentially random acts of violence waiting for you out there is deeply upsetting and disappointing but it is the reality that we are faced with right now
1: so it's just so shockingly universal to me that it's gone from look my <laughs> i don't want to speak for all Asian American cultures, but many of us are truly expert at burying trauma like it never happened. Um, and, um, you know, secrets coming to light in people's final year of life. Oh yeah, I had a sister I've never talked about or, you know, like whatever. It's it's due to like so much war and displacement, which we should come back to, I think, you know, partly. Um, so it's it's a high bar to bring up something like this in our families. We would so much rather wait for it to go away or have it just be this like slow drip of stuff. And and it feels like manageable, quote unquote, in terms of scale. And yet, as I'm talking with friends, I'm realizing every single one of them has either had the conversation with their parents where they feel like they must tell their parents because sometimes often they speak better English than their parents and their parents are not as attuned to the news. Um, or they are debating when and how I can't have this conversation with my parents right now. They have a lot going on medically. Like they, they do not have the capacity to add being hypervigilant or learning to carry a stick. Like, (laughs) you, you know, like the physical frailty of one of my parents, um, David. So like, and then I feel like I'm withholding like important information from them. um, so it's just it's really heavy. I think a lot of the people of our generation are really carrying that. Um, in the other thing, I'll say that's really heartbreaking is a friend of mine um, has a family member who, or her her, her prior generation, brought her here um, from Korea, and. You know, when you see Korean people here, I don't know if you put two and two together that the United States fought a war in Korea, and that's why the country is divided in two. And the poverty um, and anguish that was caused by the war, there are people who sent one family member walking South who ended up on the other side of a border and like have never been reunited to this day. Um, the, uh, to go from that to America, which has not been an easy life, um, for many people from Korea, many families, some, you know, some have done fine, but you know, it's, it's not necessarily been easy. Um, You know, it it was really heartbreaking to hear my friend say, "Um, I think my my parents regret coming. I think, you know, they they ask themselves, what was it for? And if I don't believe in the end that America, you know, which supposedly is the beacon of freedom and hope and opportunity, is better than post-war Korea as an outcome, like what, you know, what, what are the lies we're telling ourselves? Um, I think we frequently look inward at each other and say, well, at least I'm doing better than that, or at least I'm doing better than last year. But when we really look at where we are relative to other countries, I don't think we're crushing it. And I think that's one of the things that all this internecine warfare really disguises.
0: So those are our thoughts on the events this week. I think you had some other principles you wanted to discuss, right?
1: So, there are three big topics, like big rocks, <laughs> I want to mention in the basic understanding of racial equity for Asian Americans or AAPIs, which I'll get into that in a moment. But, you know, the first is a concept called racial triangulation theory. The second is, how did we get this term AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander? So you might have seen that around, uh, especially in hashtags this week. And finally, Asian Americans have the highest income inequality out of any racial group. So to go back to the first one, well, the first and the most important is I wanted to lift up the work of a scholar named Claire Jean Kim, um, which is you know she discusses this idea called racial triangulation theory so in racial triangulation theory what she points out what she this is a term she coined um you know if you think of america as sort of like a ladder in which you're trying to always get more power and privilege and wealth then asian americans might be seen on average as attaining something close to what white people have, or, you know, is they're, they're kind of upper um, out of the different racialized castes versus say black people and indigenous who tend to be at the bottom. However, if you consider it, not just a one directional um, ladder, you're trying to climb, but actually you add a second axis. So it's more like a graph in two dimensions. Um, Where the other axis is how inside versus outside you are, Um, Asians are sort of perpetually foreign, whereas blacks and whites are viewed as more insider. And what's really interesting is- How is
0: insider defined in this Well,
1: so um, to just give a little bit more color to that, um, you could be Greek, immigrant, and you know, be here one generation and get sort of coded as white. Um, You could be a Nigerian immigrant um, and be here for a generation or two and you will be coded as black. But so seen as belonging, seen as part of America is what insider would Mm -hmm. mean. And so outsider or foreign would be, we can be here three generations and people will still be like, go back to where you came from. And people are like, I'm from here. Um, and this like is not a, a thing that gets launched at Greeks or Nigerians in the same way, yeah. uh, especially over time. And it is possible, therefore, to sort of wedge us against blacks um, and other racial groups um, because we are always going to be... Um, Shown to be so, this is my interpretation, but you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, minorities can make it because Asians are doing well here, um, so therefore, we're not racist or we don't live in a racial society. But the foreignness is what keeps us from really um, ever fully being perceived as assimilating. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a dynamic I feel in my lived experience, like, daily. I don't know if it resonates with you.
0: Uh, yeah, for sure. I think Asian Americans, uh, uh, what we've seen this last year is that you can spend your whole life trying to assimilate, becoming part of the melting pot, working really hard, participating in your community's bowling league, and... Uh, Come and on, so we're not on. Bowling. But and you
1: you could be podcasting. You
0: know, <laughs> podcasting, making YouTube videos, what have you. And at the end of the day, um people will still view you as other, you know? Um and it comes out in different ways. It comes out in subtle ways. And in the course of last year it's come out in really explicit and frightening ways. So
1: So, um Anyway, people who are interested in learning more about racial triangulation theory, I hope I haven't butchered it. Um, As I said, I'm just a consumer um, of these concepts, but you can certainly, um, you know, Google it and read more about her. Um, You know, the other thing I wanna talk about is this term AAPI. So there has been stop Asian hate, there's been stop AAPI hate. These are hashtags that have gained a lot of traction. Um, to our earlier discussion about bigotry, I don't love the word hate because I think it implies that it's only about bigotry. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's it's the hashtag that's out there, and that's that's fine. You know, I don't um, nitpick these things personally because an enormous amount of organizing work often is behind like a phrase like black lives matter. And for you to come along and say, you wanna like just tweak it like, okay, fine. But like, did you do all the organizing work in the first place? I, I think that can feel um, like a very superficial um, response. So I, I wanna say like, what what is Asian American Pacific Islander? I think it's complicated and I think it's worth talking about a little bit. Um, as I mentioned, Asia is a large place. It is a place of people who do not identify as being just like uh, someone from Italy and someone from Ireland don't look at each other and go like, oh, we're European, you know, like, it's just, uh, it's a a simplifying way to create a continent, right, is the term Asia. So Asian American is a term that came about um, because organizers in the civil rights era were trying to find ways to find solidarity among some very fragmented communities that often had language barriers and cultural barriers between each other. And as a reminder, back home did not enjoy each other's company very much. Um, And to the extent that they were first generation immigrants, I want to be clear. Um, And so therefore, this term Asian American um, was forged again through quite a lot of work. Does it flatten a ton of nuance about where... Our original cultures are, uh, yes, of course. And like uh, Confucian culture, like from China may or may not be very similar to, um, you know, cultures in other parts of Asia. But like, let's just go with it for now. Then um, it was perceived to be more inclusive to add Pacific Islanders. And Pacific Islanders, so that's the P.I. of AAPI would be everything from Hawaii and Guam, which are both US territories now, or one's a state and one's a territory, um, all the way to Fiji and Tonga and Samoa and um, the Philippines. And these are, again, in the lens of Americans who are not from these cultures, like there's a, a lumping together of these people. and. It was more inclusive, absolutely, to add AAPI. But I think, um, and I'm not saying I'm opposed to this concept of standing in solidarity. It is important for those of us who care about AAPI issues to also understand how incredibly diverse of groups we're talking about. Um, some of these are primarily indigenous Um a lot of the Pacific Islanders, actually, their outcomes um, across different socioeconomic indicators are quite similar to Native Americans um, because of the displacement, the language erasure, the cultural traditions erasure, the seizing of the land, et cetera, et cetera, and, you know, colonialism, basically. Um, And, uh, you know, that that is not the same as a whole bunch of pretty educated people from Taiwan, you know, who came over here um, as a very small subset of Taiwan people and have overall like prospered. So I just um, believe really strongly in this solidarity, but I also don't want it to be an excuse for erasure.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's a fair point.
1: And a third point I wanted to raise is that Asian-Americans are held up as the model minority. And if you haven't heard that term, you can just Google model minority myth. Um, But basically, you know, we're the good ones. We don't get in trouble. We study hard. Uh, I I would say it has limits. You know, we're not allowed to like actually speak up, ever be angry, um, care about injustice or, you know, a a whole host of other things. Part of the model minority myth is also that we're docile and submissive, especially our women. Um, and that myth to the extent, that stereotype to the extent it holds is really for such a small subset of Asian Americans or AAPIs. So there are, um, statistics out there that if you were to disaggregate the average income by country of origin for AAPI immigrants, what you would find is that people from India and Taiwan and Malaysia are at are are <laughs> above the average white income, and almost everybody else is below. All the way down to people from like Nepal and Burma are um, like from Burma, often refugees, um, like formerly. I think it, it well, it's now called Myanmar, um, but often referred to as Burmese. Anyway, they're making like 50 cents on the dollar compared to Americans. And it is a testament to the resourceless conditions in which they arrive in the United States. And so it's at this point, um, the income inequality within Asian Americans has grown so fast that we have the most unequal incomes out of any racial group. And so... I think people have trouble even picturing a poor Asian person sometimes. And I would ask yourself, why is that? It's because of the handful of times that we are represented. It's something closer to crazy rich Asians than it is really examining the conditions under which someone might be working illegally at a nail salon so that you can have a manicure for $12 in New York City. So I really think that as you learn more, if you choose to, which I hope you do, and this is an invitation to do so, um, that you appreciate that for us to stand in solidarity means standing in solidarity across wealth, across income, across immigration status especially. And that is one of the things that was so deeply upsetting about this Um shooting in atlanta is it felt like this type of business regardless of whether you think these women were involved in sex work or not they were clearly believed by the shooter to be involved in sex work because that is explicitly why he killed them um and these are among the most vulnerable people in america um sex workers are I mean, first of all, their job is criminalized. Secondly, they're often, uh, their industry is filled with human trafficking. Um, Thirdly, there's a long, long problematic history of viewing Asian women as basically only fit for sex work or that their highest value is sex work that arose partly due to American deployments overseas in Korea and Vietnam. Um, and other places, Um, and, um, you know, immigration is such that only certain people are allowed from certain places at certain times, and so in order to come here, there isn't necessarily a legal way to do it um, as easily from certain places, and, you know, basically, uh, every barrier a person could theoretically have You could imagine being true of these women who were killed. Now, I'm not saying that they were all true, but what I'm trying to explain is why this was like a deeply horrifying um, target for many of us, because those of us who do work across different Asian American communities in solidarity know that this is... um, that these are some of the people who like have the least recourse. And it's also American bodies can be pleasured at a price that they think is reasonable. Um, And it's only a pleasure for them if any injustice or pain is hidden from sight, and it's always a accommodating experience. So I think um, my grief is you know partly for these specific women, but also for the system and the history that has created the situation that they were there. Um, anybody can be killed at any time, but I don't believe that our justice system will honor and protect their memories. And th- that that is really hard
0: for me. Let's talk a little bit about what, you know, if someone has been listening to this or watching this and they've gotten to this point, um, what we can recommend for them to do. Cause I think that there's a lot of people, certainly my friends who are not Asian, who like are deeply upset by the events this week and they want to help, you know, they want to do something. Uh, and I guess I want to give them some advice, you know? Um, but I do think that something that a lot of people are saying is like a lot of Asian Americans are saying, like stand with us and I agree with that. I think that what is standing with us entail? Well, it means calling this shit out when you see it, you know? Um, there's actually something called like bystander intervention training uh, that I saw, and it's like they'll, they'll just google it. It will train you on how to intervene in a situation where you see something terrible happening. And I think that that is extremely valuable.
1: I mean, to the extent that we think the problem is people being violently attacked in public, I would agree with that. I think that is only part of the problem.
0: <laughs> Another part of it is I would say, uh, don't ignore the concerns of Asian people. <laughs> what I mean by that is like, uh, I think when people say things like, don't use the term China virus or Kung flu, right? When people say that We stuff, have
1: been pleading for that. Yeah,
0: please. When People have said, please stop doing that uh, because it's going to create uh violent attacks against us it will be
1: yellow peril chapter 10
0: right and uh certainly many people backed us up when we said that but a lot of people didn't and so another thing to do is when asian people and asian americans say hey uh this is really bad don't uh, call this out don't do it believe them and call that shit out and a third part that kind of Joy is hinting at is, uh, to the best of your ability, educate yourself on what's going on, educate yourself on wealth and class disparity, educate yourself on the history of this country's racist policies and attacks against Asian people, ranging from like the Chinese Exclusion Act to Japanese internment and all these kinds of things, and understand the fear that we have that these things can happen again. Uh, So those are the things that I would recommend. What do you think, Joy?
1: I mean, I think there's two kinds of can I do something. There's like, can it? What can I do right now, and what can I do that's bigger? Um, in terms of what can I do that's bigger, I wouldn't even try until you have invested some effort into understanding the contour of the problem. Um, I don't try software engineering. Um, if I just feel like something is not well engineered because I don't know how to be a software engineer, I assume that takes five years of training. Um, We have so little respect for race in America that people see a person get killed by a cop in the streets and they're like, but what can I do? And my question is, why would you feel like you are qualified to do anything yet? So I appreciate the energy but what we really need is like a much broader, much longer term change. We are like the seatbelt campaign or the no smoking campaign in public places. And those managed to have massive amounts of behavioral change over like 10 or 15 years. But it didn't, it, it took an, a very broad based effort over a long period of time. So if you want to be part of that, I would love that, and I think that's going to take some diligence, and I would invite you to stay with this. We haven't even talked about anti-blackness in the Asian community, both back in Asia and in America. Um, We haven't talked about um, I think, a resulting sometimes anti asianness in the black community um, and how I would personally argue, and I think lots of other people would, too, that th- this is all actually like a part of how white supremacy gets maintained is by pitting us against each other and um, And so there is so much to learn and it may feel like it's an overwhelming amount, but I think there actually is like a framework through which this can be understood. Um, And it doesn't have to be picking, you know, caring about Black Lives Matter versus caring about um, or caring about um, what happened in Atlanta or the anti-Asian violence that's going on. Um, In the short term... We are particularly pained by, I really feel like this is fair to say, um, by feeling invisible. And it's a really double-edged sword because many Asian cultures do sort of preach, like, just keep your head down, don't make trouble, and, you know, work hard and you'll be rewarded for it. Um, But it's really, really, really dangerous to... Uh, stick your neck out. And so therefore, we don't always feel comfortable calling attention to ourselves. But trust me, it is noticed when you reach out and when you express support, whether that's publicly or just privately with your friends. Um, I've gotten some really kind notes and I don't always have the emotional energy to respond. So I would very much encourage you because all of us are really tired right now, you know, to say like, hey, I just want you to know I'm thinking of you and there's no pressure to respond. If you want to talk, I'm here. And, and if not, you know, I'm, I'm in your I'm, I'm thinking of you. Um, and I think that's always welcome, because even if it feels a little awkward, even if that might feel like an overreach It's really better than the person never hearing from you because the alternative is for us to wonder, like, did they, did they care? Did they even, did they even think I'm Asian? Which is like, I know a really weird thing to say, but we're so good at blending in that sometimes it feels like that's how we've succeeded to the extent that we have is by adopting the dominant culture's way of talking, like I am on this podcast, and um, ways of thinking, ways of being, cultural preferences, um, so that there's so little left, you know, that's quote unquote, different about us that it's, um, you know, it's a question of whether you perceive any difference in our identity at all. So I hope that that makes sense, even though I'm, I'm also saying at the same time that we are uh, or we can be perceived as foreign and as a threat by some.
0: Well, if you've listened this far, um, we appreciate it because you have at least, you've at least taken the time to listen to two Asian Americans' perspective <laughs> on this. And I don't want to undersell that that's very valuable. So we thank you for that. Um, we thank you for tuning in. We hope you're staying safe out there wherever you are, um, both from the pandemic and other terrible things that might befall you. And uh, if you see something, call it out, stand up for what's right in the world, Uh, put out good things into the world and uh, stand against hatred, stand with us. We would be so grateful for that. I also just want to thank my patrons over at patreon.com slash Dave Chen for their support. Um, They're who keep me going and making stuff like this, what you're listening to and potentially watching right now. So thank you all over there at patreon.com slash Dave Chen. It's greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening to Culturally Relevant. And until next time, we'll see you later.